was uh, mentioned uh, here and at our other campuses and venues that were uh, handing out uh, car or window decals today that uh, have the either the SBC logo on them or uh, something that says SBC and then with our logo uh, in the C on it. So for those of you who are more aggressive, you'll put the SBC one on. For those who want something more subtle, we have our logo for you. Now, here's what I want to encourage you. We kind of said this, but we, we kind of didn't, and that's that um, these are for people whose drive is a good witness. Do we all understand that? <laughs> There's, a, uh, there's another church in the valley that uses these quite aggressively. I'm not going to say who it is. Their initials are CCV. And uh, there are times, I'm dear friends with Don Wilson, the pastor there. There's times I'm driving down the road and I'll see a CCV decal and my heart will warm. I'll think, oh my gosh, there's a fellow believer and I feel good because, you know, and then they'll like cut me off or something like that. <laughs> And I try to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think, well, I'll bet you somebody sold them that car from CCV. I'm sure that a fellow believer would never drive like that. And it's a true story. About 25 years ago, Kim's at the service here. Um, I, my dad gave me, you know, my dad's always tried to, to reach out to me and my, my Christian faith. And because um, we don't always say eye to eye there. And, and he's always tried to be supportive. So one year for Christmas, when I first married Kim, he gave me a, a, a little fish. Remember those, those fish that you put on the back of your car? And I said, wow, dad, that's a really thoughtful gift. Thank you. I uh, hope there's more. But there, there was. And, and, you know, he gave me that fish. And afterward, Kim pulled me aside, and she said, you may not put that on your car. And I said, why not? She said, because you are not a testimony when you drive. <laughs> now, I haven't asked her yet if we can put these on. We'll, we'll see when we get home. But, but some of you are just not that good of a testimony, and it's okay. Just stay away from our decals. For the rest of you... I do hope that you use it because we're talking today about how to be a witness and it is quite frankly a little bit of a good uh, conversation starter or remind you of your church on a regular basis, might even remind you to pray for your church as you look in the rear view mirror as you're getting in the car and you just see that SBC logo to say, oh yeah, and, and pray for us and maybe someone might even say, what's that logo? I've never recognized that before and you can say, well, that's my church and then they'll say, what church do you go to? And now they asked and you're off to the races. So uh, that's actually pretty good there too. So let's dive in today to the word. Uh, and as I always do, before we open God's book, uh, I pray. So why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for the gathered church here today and at Cactus, Mountain Valley, our chapel and our venue. We're really grateful, God, for the congregations that you've given us here that form one body called Scottsdale Bible Church. We pray that as we open your book now, Father, and take a look at uh, what I'm gonna argue are some of the most important words of Jesus uh, when it comes to us as a church. I pray, God, that you would empower our minds by your Holy Spirit. May we understand these things rightly and enliven our hearts by your same spirit, so that our wills might act in accordance with your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. amen. So here's a good starting place. We all have learned this in life. Uh, sometimes a person's last and final words are the most important and profound words they might say. Uh, some people call them dying words, but, but we're all going to someday have dying words. Have you ever given thought to what your dying words might be? Uh, I looked up this week uh, some, some references on some famous uh, last words of some famous people, and I was moved by many of them. John Quincy Adams, his last words were, this is the last of earth, and I am content. 
I, I kind of like that. Uh, Thomas Becket, who was a martyr for the church, said, I am ready to die for my Lord, that in my blood the church may obtain liberty and peace at a time in which it was very tumultuous. I, I like this one from Beethoven. All of you know Beethoven. He said, friends applaud, the comedy is finished. Only an artist could say that. Sometimes final words are, are, are not all that meaningful, but I kind of find them funny. Humphrey Bogart's final words before he died, I should have never switched from scotch to martinis. <laughs> it's kind of goofy, right? Bing Crosby, many of you remember Bing Crosby. I love this one. His final words, that was a great game of golf, fellers. And then he died. That's not a bad way to go out. Uh, some final words are extremely moving. They're, they come from the ashes of brokenness and need and, uh, and even humility. Uh, so let's look at some of these. Edward, Edgar Allan Poe, the great poet, said, Lord, help my poor soul as he died. Uh, da Vinci, my gosh, I, I can hardly believe these are his last words. Leonardo da Vinci said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. Oh my gosh. And then my favorite are from Woodrow Wilson, very simple. He simply said, I am ready. I am ready. Most people are terrified to die and go on. Woodrow Wilson said, I, I am ready. Here's what we learned from just this quick look at these things. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes people's final and last words are very profound, arguably even maybe the most important. And as we all know, Jesus had some final and last words. They weren't the words that he spoke before he died. Before he died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit when he was on the cross. But as you guys know, those were not his final words. Why? Because he died and then he was... Come back next Easter. He was resurrected from the grave, okay? I knew it was on the tip of your tongue. He died and then he was resurrected and then he walked this earth for 40 more days and during those days, he said a lot of things to his disciples and to 500 people that saw him, the Bible says, but then he did breathe some final words before he ascended into heaven. They're recorded in Acts chapter one and Jesus is about to go up into heaven and said someday he would return and we're still waiting and so Jesus did have some last and final earthbound words and I'm going to argue with you here this morning that I think they are his most important and profound words when it comes to this idea of the church you see they're his final instructions to his followers here on earth they're the words he hoped would propel them forward into this thing called the church and they're the ones that he hoped that they and us would never forget and so let's read them. They comprise what I would consider the mission and mandate that Jesus wanted to leave us with. These are his final instructions to us. And if you brought a Bible, they're found in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We'll put it up here as I always do on the monitor. So follow along as I read Acts 1, 6 through 11. Let's dial in to Jesus' last words. And so when they, the disciples, had come together, they were asking him, Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, 
He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And ever since that time, 2,000 years ago, we have been waiting, the church has, Christians have, for the return of Jesus to come in visible power as he left this earth. Now, what is Jesus trying to say to us in these last and final words before he was ascended into heaven? Picture the scene. You got the 11 at that time disciples. Judas had betrayed them and had died. 11 disciples that are now wondering what's going to go on next. Well, you know, Jesus is resurrected. Is he going to set up shop here in Jerusalem and bring back the glory days of David and Solomon and, and the kingdom of Israel? And they're hoping that's what it is. And so they're all waiting at bated breath what is going to happen. And Jesus says, no, it's not for you to know those times are epics. The Father has that one under his belt, and that will come in due time. And then he gives them these orders to be his witnesses, and even mentions all the places that they will be his witnesses, and then literally is ascended up into heaven. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are these last words about? And so here's our main point that I think is contained in this account of Jesus' last human interaction with his disciples that I hope will forever cement in our minds what the church is about. And it's this, and that is that the marching orders for the church, at least according to Acts 1 here, is that we are to win, build, and send. We are to go into all the world and win people to faith in Jesus Christ, as we'll see by the power of his spirit, and then we're to build people up in that newfound faith and make them disciples of Jesus and then send them back out into their spheres of influence to be winners and builders themselves. Now, let's break down what's happening in Acts chapter one so that we truly understand this is what Jesus is saying. And to fully understand the fact that these are truly marching orders, Look at how verses 1 and 2 begin of the book of Acts. So we read verses 6 through 11, just a few verses before this. Don't miss how this whole book begins. Luke, who's the writer of Acts, says the first account composed, Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So just dial into this fact. We know that Luke had wrote the book of Acts. We also know that Luke wrote the gospel of, say it with me, Luke. Okay, some of you are really asleep. That was easy. The gospel of Luke was written by Luke. So you have the gospel of Luke written by Luke. You have then the book of Acts written by Luke. And so verses 1 and 2 of Acts 1 are the bridge verses between the life of Jesus, the gospel of Luke, and the church, because the book of Acts is all about the church, and this is bridging those two things as he writes about this to his friend Theophilus. And the key that you need to notice there, the bridge that bridges the gospels and then Acts, is the fact that the, the Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gave orders to the apostles gave orders. Uh, that word order is the same word used for command throughout all of the New Testament and even the Greek version of the Old Testament. Uh, that word literally means, now watch this, that phrase means to give a charge, to give a command. 
to tell somebody to do something that you expect them to do. It's a phrase of authority. And so the question that we need to be asking, that they were asking in verses one and two here, well, what are these orders that Jesus has given? And it is true that, that in verse four, Jesus gave them an order. He said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the Holy Spirit. But that can't be the heart of it all because that's just an order to wait. So then we get to the verses we just read earlier. Now watch this gang, verses six through 11. And the main command in verses six through 11, did you catch it, is this command. You shall be my witnesses. That's the order. That's the command that Jesus was ramping up to as he then commissions the church. Those are the simple marching instructions that you and I have been given. It's not complicated. We are to be his witnesses. That comprises the instructions, the orders that Jesus has given us. This is the mission and mandate, if you will, of the church. And let us not forget, these are his last and final words. And so if last and final words carry any more weight than other words, and I suggest to you that sometimes they do, then this idea of being his witnesses is really key to what Jesus wanted us to remember as to who and what we are as the church. So with this understanding of witnesses and the orders that Jesus gave us, I want us to notice three things contained about this idea or contained in this idea of witnesses that is contained right here in Acts 1 and in the Bible. First, notice with me that this is a command to each and all of us. Now, why is that important? Uh, over the years, and I know it's going to be hard for some of you to believe Christians would do this, but some Christian theologians over the years have tried to argue that this command here was given to the apostles and that you and I are not apostles, and so there's only special people in the church that really get this command, like paid pastors and others, and the rest of you get off scot-free. I'm here to blow that one out of the water this morning because there's no evidence or room for that one at all. No, the evidence tells us that Jesus gave this order not just to the apostles, but to everybody that would be his followers. And to best understand that, you need to understand the distinction between what I call, between what I call apostolic succession and witness succession. In other words, in the book of Acts, indeed we do see, or we don't see, an apostolic succession. What does that mean? In other words, you had the apostles, and the apostles by the very nature of who they were, an apostle is defined as one who was an eyewitness of Jesus. Which is why even Paul the apostle is called an apostle because Jesus appeared to him on the road to, to Damascus in a blinding light and then appeared to him at other times, even in his post-resurrection, post-ascension state. But because he was an eyewitness of Jesus, he got to be called an apostle. But if you weren't an eyewitness of Jesus, then you didn't get to be called an apostle. And most theologians agree that once the apostles died out, that idea of being an eyewitness also died out. So there is no apostolic succession. I smile when I say it because there are some Christians and Christian denominations that try to argue that they are apostles. You ever met somebody like that today? They'll say, I'm apostle so-and-so and apostle so-and-so. Some of you have. And I never, I mean, look, let's not be rude. I don't say to those people, well, actually, I've read the book of Acts and you're not. I don't say that to them. <laughs> but I do think to myself, 
I'm not comfortable, even as a pastor or a Christian, taking on that title because my best understanding, and most Bible experts agree, is that there was no apostolic succession when the apostles died out. So what was there? There was witness succession. And this is really awesome when you read the book of Acts. In other words, don't miss this, what does happen in the book of Acts is that you have a lot of other players that were not eyewitnesses of Jesus, but they got the message from Acts 1 that they are to be witnesses of what they know and have experienced, and so they became witnesses, and this whole idea of witness succession started to snowball. So just a cursory reading of the book of Acts tells us that Timothy picked this up and became a witness. John Mark picked this up and became a witness. Aquila and Priscilla, who were definitely not apostles, picked this up and became a witness. Silas picked this up and became a witness. Are you starting to see uh, the idea here? Everyone who was positively affected by the original witnesses, the apostles, to the life-changing power of Jesus, went on to become witnesses themselves. And so none of them, ne- none of them ever entertained the thought well, maybe that was just given to the original apostles. No, this idea of you shall be my witnesses, they knew was just as much for them as everybody else. And could it be now, that's why Jesus says, I mean, think about this with me logically. When he says you shall be my witnesses, he says what, in Jerusalem? And then remember Judea and Samaria. So kind of think Black Canyon City, Sedona, that type of stuff. But then he says, what do he say? And the remotest parts of the earth. The question becomes, if that command was only for the apostles who never made it further than Rome, we know that for a fact, how do you make sense of that commission and that command? It has to include you and I. Because now 2,000 years later, we are, compared to Jerusalem, (laughs) some of the remotest parts of the earth. And for the last 2,000 years, Christians have clung to this idea. This is the mandate to the church that if you are a breathing follower of Jesus, then you are, by the very nature of that, a witness. Now, let's move on here. What exactly is a witness? I've been throwing this word around for about 10 or 15 minutes rather liberally. And so the question becomes, what precisely is a witness? And what does a witness do? And to answer this, let's notice the second thing that we see here in the book of Acts and in other places in the Bible, and that is that a witness is simply someone who testifies to that which he or she knows and has experienced. That's really important, gang, for you to see this, because some of you, as I'll talk about here in a second here, are really threatened by this idea that I might see you or that God might see you as a witness. But let's try to take the edge off. A witness is simply someone who testifies to that which he or she knows and has experienced. So Webster's Dictionary defines a witness as, and I quote, one who has personal knowledge of something, the attestation to a fact or event. That's all it is. So if you're in a court of law and you're a witness, it simply means that you're going to give verbal or written testimony to that which you saw or to that which you heard or to that which you might know if you're an expert witness. It's no different in the Christian realm. It really is absolutely synonymous. When God says that we shall be his witnesses, he's simply saying to share what he has done in this world through Jesus coming into this world, and then share what he has done in you. 
And so I love how one pastor said it so well years ago. He said, the idea of being a witness is simply learning to share his story as it's intersected with your story. That's all we're asking here. It's for you to share who God is and what he has done in history past and even today that makes believing in Jesus so incredibly important and then make sure that you share your part in that because how how he has entered your life and what that has meant for you. And this is why I say, maybe now you can see, that containment this idea of, of being a witness is this strategy, if you will, or mission to win build and send because you're giving witness within all three of those realms look up here on the monitor think about it Uh, winning people to christ is simply sharing the gospel with them you're giving witness to that and again some of you freak out at this idea having to share the gospel with people I, i tried to give you the most simple way to remember the guts of the gospel about a year or two ago when I said that you can share the gospel with people in four words. Many of you have forgotten them since then, so let's review them, because I'm telling you, this is gold. Four words to cover the bases, like at four bases, of the gospel, and they are God, sin, Christ, you. Man, if you can remember those four words, you got the gospel nailed down. God loves you and made you, he is real. But sin, which you are born with and that you still have in your life, separates you from a holy God who loves you and wants to know you. So third word, Christ came into this world. Written in history, rooted in history 2,000 years ago as the perfect incarnate son of God. And he died on a cross for your sin to forgive you and bring you to God. Then the fourth word, but you need to make a decision. You need to believe and accept him. That's the gospel, gang. I can't tell you how many times I meet people who are seeking in this culture of ours, and I'll say to them, and this is a great lead-in, by the way, I'll say to them, because they're interested in spiritual things, has anybody ever sat you down and explained to you the gospel of Jesus in three minutes with such clarity that you will never forget it and know what it is you're being asked to respond to? Has anybody ever done that for you? What do you think most people say to me? No. And then I just say, would you mind if I did that? And it's not like an infomercial. It's not a PBS special. That's boring. I can do it in three minutes on a napkin in a restaurant. And what do I do? I write four words. God, sin, Christ, you. And then I always circle the word you. (laughs) Because that's what God is asking for them. So we give witness to that. That, That's the guts of the gospel, and we're all asked to give verbal witness to that. Now notice, as well, part of being a witness is then a witness to what he's done in you, which is the growth part. As you have accepted Christ and grown over the years, what's that been like? I mean, this is the fun part. What's God done in your marriage? What's God done with your kids? What's God done with your perspective on work or culture? What has God done in your personal life? Anything? I mean, if he's done nothing, you'll be kind of a poor witness. But my guess is, is that he's done something in you, big or small, and you give witness to that, and that's your growth, and that's him building into your life, and you testify to that. And then this is the send part, and this is actually really important. We give witness to other people that they need to be a witness. (laughs) And therein is the mission of the church. We are to win people to faith in Christ through being a witness. We are to build others up in their life by sharing our growth and then being a witness. And then we're to send them back out, all of us, into culture to be a witness. 
And again, even as I explain it this way, guys, I, I, I know that some of you are so, I mean, you're just awkward right now. This conversation's awkward for you, right? Like you're going, I, I don't like this. I don't, I don't like what he's talking about today. This is not a, a, as good of a topic as, as sometimes he does. And, you know, I'm just thinking about what I'm going to eat for lunch. I want to try to bring you back in right now. Here's one thing we miss sometimes in, um, in, in this understanding of witness. And that's that it really is to be a very natural thing. I, I abhor people that try to say to others, you ever heard this phrase, you need to be a good witness? You ever, I always wonder, what does that mean? Like, what's a good witness? And, 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 and it means one of two things when people use it. It either means that they are to be a good moral witness, which I agree with, by the way. In other words, don't put one of our decals on your car if you don't drive like a Christian. I get that. Be a good witness. But many times what they also mean by that is that you need to somehow follow their formula for how to be a witness. Share this little track or do it this way or use this little bridge illustration or whatever. I mean, they're all good things. But, but, but it, let's be honest, at the end of the day, most of those things are formulaic. And at least for me, those are the things that tend to create a lot of pressure. See, here's what I know as I look out at many of you and as I think of Mountain Valley and Cactus and Venue and, and, and uh, Chapel is that God has made each of you extremely unique. He really has. I interact with you all week long. And here's, here's what I know. Some of you are really intellectual people. You just love things of the mind. You read a lot of books. Uh, since you've been saved, you love guys like Ravi Zacharias and Answers in Genesis and, and Josh McDowell and, and the good hearty apologist. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're more of an intellectually wired person here today, does God want to use that as core to your witness, yes or no? Of course he does. I mean, you're going to be the person that runs into that wayward ASU student who's all intellectually bound up about these things, and God's going to use you to very naturally talk about intellectual things and help sort that out with that guy. And I'm thrilled about that. And that's going to be core to your witness. Others of you are more relational, relational in nature. I mean, what I tell you as I do as your pastor often that God loves you, I can tell by the look on your face. Some of you intellectual people are going, I know, I know, he loves me. You know, I get that. But the more relational among you, you actually start to tear up. You get the fact that, that, that relationship with Christ is so important and you're wired that way. And again, God's going to use that, that highly relational approach that you have to be core to your witness. You're going to be the person sitting there at Starbucks just listening for an hour Intellectual people stink at listening. You're going to listen for an hour and you're going to hear somebody's story and you're going to ask curious, wonderful, life-giving questions. And through that, God's going to use that as a witness. Some of you are more experiential people. I love Christians like that. You ever met Christians like that? Like they're always talking about the last thing that Jesus did in their lives. And 50% of them are almost unbelievable, right? Even as a pastor, I go, really, really? I think that was the burrito you ate last night, actually. But, but I don't say that. But I, I wonder sometimes. I just think. But I also love the passion of experiential people who are saying, you know, I saw this God, God, God do this, and I saw God do that, and it's so wonderful. And, I, and here's my question to you. Does God use that as a witness to those around us? Of course he does. Again, some of you go, I, I'm, not, I'm not like that. That God uses that. I can't tell you how many people I've known have come to Christ because of a Christian who shares what God has done in them recently. 
And then as a fourth example, for all the different styles we have, you have people that are more activist and serving in their witness. They're just, they're the ones that love their hands and their feet and they see love as only love when love is in motion and doing something. So they do things for people. They come alongside people. They help people. And they're not as verbose as some of you, thank the Lord, but they love to serve. And as they serve, again, let me ask you, because we all got to be in agreement on this. Does God use that as a witness, yes or no? Of course he does. Now, again, at some point, you need to get to a verbal witness. So please understand that. I, I, and again, you can even cheat on that. I got my last church. I loved her to death. She was just terrified to share a verbal witness, and she reached out to one of her neighbors who was dying of cancer, and she put on a garage sale for her and really reached out to her, and eventually his neighbor said, why are you doing all this for me? And she said, well, I'm a Christian, you know, and that was about as far as she got. And, and, and this gal, Connie, was really interested in that. Like, she's going, no one's ever loved me that way. And, and, and so my friend, who was really terrified to share a verbal witness, uh, called me and said, would you do it? <laughs> now, now don't go I don't have time to do that 6,000 times here but I did in Cleveland and I, and I said to her yes and I'll never get, get the day that she brought Connie into my office and Connie prayed to receive Christ that very day and, and really I didn't do anything you're here in a minute it's all the Holy Spirit but it was simply sharing with her what, what, what four words do you think I shared with Connie that day anybody know God, sin, Christ and you and Connie said, that's the first time I've ever heard that. That makes perfect sense. I'd like to meet my Savior before I die. And she accepted Christ. But God uses all different styles. That's my point. He has done this amazing thing in history of sending Christ for our sins. And here's the point, too. He's done amazing things in you. And his primary commandment to us as the church is to be my witnesses. Win, build, send. And we do this as his witnesses. Now, one last thing that we need to know about our personal and corporate mandate to be a witness, and then we have one more thing to share after that and we're done, but, but here it is, and that is that there is great power behind our witness. A a again, you guys gotta really see this. Look at it in the text here. This is really cool. In verse eight, which I read for you earlier, some of you missed this because you jumped right to the witness idea. Notice what Jesus says before that. He says, but you shall receive, say it with me, power, when the, say it with me, Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Link those three things together. Power, Holy Spirit, witnesses. And now let me ask you the $10 question and we're gonna move on from this. When you are being his witness, who really is running the show, you or God? It's God. It's his power working in you. It's his Holy Spirit who lives in you. In fact, it's really hard for you to mess it up because God knows that you have flesh and that you are fallen and that you make mistakes. He's factored all of that into the equation and has still said, please be my witness. And so I have seen people be, be witnesses in the most awkward, ridiculous, non-conventional ways over the years, and I've seen God use them to lead other people to Jesus Christ. And, and I said, they go, only God, only God. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I'm telling you, the number one thing that holds many of us back is not that the Holy Spirit doesn't live in us. It's not that we don't even have our own story. It's not that we can't even look at others and say, God, sin, Christ, and you. It's just that we don't take this step forward. As Bill Hybels says, you know what evangelism's all about? It's a walk across the room. 
Many of us sit here on this side of the room at a party, and there's all these lost people all across the room, and here's all God asks you to do. Just get your duff up and walk across the room and start to interact and be his witness. Very naturally, given your intellectual, relational, uh, service-oriented, whatever style you have, God wants to use it all and, and be his witness. And that's how the kingdom moves forward. Now, I have one last thing I want to share that I put on your outline as your take-home point that's, uh, believe it or not, contained right in this text here today. We're staying close to this text. And that is that once you understand the mission of the church, that we are to win, build, send, and that this all surrounds this idea of you and I being witnesses, that's what the church is about, um, there is one last thing you need to understand that Jesus shares with us in these last words, and that is this, to resist the temptation to become sidetracked. Because there's a lot of things that can grab your focus if you're not careful. I, I told you it's right here in the text here. Look one last time at Acts chapter one and you'll see what I mean. It says, and so when they had come together, the disciples, and they were asking him, Jesus, they said, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he goes on to give the orders that he gives. I find this precursor dialogue here very interesting. I don't know about you, but, but they were really focused on the fact that they wanted Jesus to set up shop physically in Israel. That's a much longer story than we have time for today, but based on all of the expectations of the coming Messiah and what they wanted Jesus to do and be and to bring back the glory days of Israel and the nation Israel in Palestine at that time and then to bring back the glory of David and Solomon and rebuild the temple. I mean, there was a lot of things involved in that and they thought Jesus was gonna be the head of all of that. And to be sure, the Bible says someday he will. Read the book of Revelation, especially skip to chapter 20, and you'll read about a millennial kingdom that God is going to establish someday here on earth, a thousand-year reign of Jesus. That stuff is coming. So it wasn't a bad question, don't miss this, that they were asking. In fact, it was a very legitimate question that they were asking. It was a legitimate thing to focus on. But what does Jesus do here? He tries to take their focus off of it by saying, it's not for you to know. The times are epics which the Father is fixed by his own authority. And then watch this. Jesus goes on to say, but here's what I do want you to know. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's what I want you to do. So what's the point for you and I? Be careful you don't get sidetracked. Because if you do, he's going to gently turn your head or for some of you, because you don't do gentleness, he's going to, in a harsh way, turn your head so that you might start to focus on what really matters, and that is the mission that he has for us to be his witnesses. And again, I'm not going to go through the list in length because i got a story to tell you and then we're done, but I, I get a front row seat all week long of seeing Christians get sidetracked with other focuses when it comes to our mission. I get Christians come into my office and they just want to talk ad nauseum about things like the administration of the church 
Why did you guys decide this? And why is the parking lot not paved? And why is there dirt after that storm in the parking lot? And why did we choose to do this song? And why do we start church at nine instead of 8.30? And oh, I mean, believe it or not, I get that all week long. And I am patient because I'm a loving, good pastor and, and all that. <laughs> but there are times, there are times when I would never do this person. But there are times when I want to look at somebody like Dale. I'll pick on Dale. I, Dale would, I want to say, Dale, uh, before I answer all your administrative questions, who was the last person you led to Jesus? Right, that would be a really pointed question, wouldn't it? And, and, and the point would be well taken. My pastor used to always ask me that, by the way. I got discipled so well back in the 80s and loved my pastor. Every time he'd see me come home from college, he'd say, well, Jamie, who have you had the joy of leading to the Lord lately? I'd be like, oh my gosh, I better find somebody. I mean, you know, as I like, you know. But my mentor, Lud, was really good. He, he, he knew what we needed to keep our eye on, amen? I see people get sidetracked all week long with their theological hot buttons, with social and cultural issues, with personal agendas. Now listen, they're all legitimate. Just as it was legitimate for the disciples to want to know are you gonna set up shop in Jerusalem right now? That's not illegitimate. That's a legitimate question. All of our issues, even in the administrative church, is legitimate. It's just that none of those things are the primary focus. There's only one focus of the church that's primary, and he has a name. Whose name is it? Jesus. And Jesus has given us some final words. What are they? Be my witnesses. Last story, and then we're done. Salmon, you're going to love this one. When I was in seventh grade, my dad wanted me to play all three major sports to see which one I was going to be good at. What are the three major sports? Football in the fall, basketball in the winter, and then if you're from the Midwest, baseball in the spring. <laughs> I was very small when I was in junior high. I entered high school at four foot 10, 85 pounds. I know that because I wrestled 85 pounds uh, when I couldn't play football very well at that, 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 that uh, stature. And, uh, and, and so I wasn't very good at football. I wasn't very good at basketball because I wasn't very tall. And so my best chance was baseball. And so when I was in sixth or seventh grade, my dad made me uh, join the Little League baseball team in our hometown. Now, I'd actually played baseball before that, and I was pretty good at it as long as it was underhand. <laughs> because when you're a little kid and they're throwing a little softball at you underhand, I mean, you have to be really uncoordinated not to hit that thing. And so I, I was actually fairly good, you know, probably, I probably was batting 500, you know, at that age and, and pretty good at, 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 at baseball. But when my dad enrolled me in Little League in junior high, I was just aghast they were throwing that ball overhand. And I can still remember one of the first times as a little guy, that ball came whizzing by the plate. I mean, it wasn't that fast for a junior high, but it sure seemed that fast. I remember thinking to myself, where did the ball go? And it was in the catcher's mitt. <laughs> and it was that time I realized this was going to be very, very hard for me to hit this ball. And, and, and believe it or not, and this was not like, I need therapy traumatic, but it was somewhat traumatic for me. I, I can distinctly remember I was one of the last guys on that team to ever learn how to hit that ball, and it became known. Rasmussen was a guy who just couldn't hit the ball. And, and for the life of me, every time they threw a pitch at me, I couldn't hit the ball. And this can sound so simple to some of you, but I'll never forget the day the coach said to me, Jamie, I know your problem. He said, when you're standing at the plate there, I'm watching your eyes, and your eyes are first on that pitcher, and then when that ball's released, your eyes are on the bat. And he said to me, the only way you're ever going to hit that ball is to keep your eye on the ball. The ball. And that's where we get that phrase, keep your eye on the ball. And I thought, oh, no, it can't be that easy. 
Next pitch came, kid you not, and, and the ball's coming faster than I've ever seen a ball go in my life. And I thought, there's no way I can hit it. There's no way I can hit it. I'm watching the ball, and I swung, and I didn't look at the bat this time. I didn't look at the picture. I looked right at the ball, and what happened? I, I didn't hit a home run. What, are you crazy? <laughs> but thank you. I did hit the ball. I hit the ball. And, and this is embarrassing. I mean, it was such a big deal that the catcher, Steve Dietrich, stood up and yelled to the rest of the team, Jamie finally hit the ball. <laughs> and I was so mortified that I said, I'm not playing that sport anymore. And I became a wrestler and I ran cross country and that was the end of my baseball career. But I will never forget that as long as I live. Basketball is similar. You don't keep your eye on the ball. If you're learning to shoot a basketball, and I, I played intramural basketball finally in college, man, you got to keep your eye on the tip of that rim. You, you don't keep your eye on the ball. You keep it on the, where you're heading for, and as you release that ball, there's a good chance as you practice and practice and practice, it just might go in. I'm learning this now with golf and, and where my head needs to be with golf. See, all the major sports work the same way. And here's my point. In the church, it is so easy to take our eye off the ball. And just for a final review, because we're done, who, for the sake of analogy, is the ball that we keep our eyes on in the church? Jesus. If you didn't get that right, gosh, see me afterward. It's Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus has given us some marching orders. And as we keep our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews says, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we keep our eyes on that Jesus, he then keeps us focused on what our main mission is, and that's to be his witnesses, to live such faith-oriented, love-oriented lives as we talked about last week, and then this week, to be willing to be a witness for him in our own way, in our own temperament. And here's all I know, the Holy Spirit lives in you, he does love you, and he will use you. It's just a walk across the room. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for uh, your words to us. I thank you, God, for the fact that sometimes final words can be really the most profound and important. And I thank you, God, that um, Jesus gave us some final words. And I pray, God, that as each of these dear people here and at our campuses and venues think about those words for their own lives, that's really what we need to do, and what it means for them to be a witness, wherever you might take them this week, this month, this year, God, use us all. May, may we not be afraid, Lord, to give witness to who you are in history past and even today, and then, Lord, what you've done in our lives. And as we marry those two things together, God, use us. Thank you, Lord, for these final words of Jesus to the church that have allowed us to uh, exist powerfully for 2,000 years. And as we're entering, Lord, into turbulent waters now in our nation, God, we pray that the church would stand strong, that she would be a great witness, and that your return would be soon. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name, and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.